Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian societies and communes, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Welcome back, friends. It's Anna, your underprepared but enthusiastic podcast host. You're in for a big treat today because I'm going to tell you about something you've never heard of. Well, unless you're the failed utopians who loaned me the book that this entire episode is about, then you'll have heard of it. But for the rest of you, get ready to hear about Naked in the Woods, an aptly titled book by Margaret Grunstein about her years spent in a utopian hippie commune in the woods in Oregon. This should go without saying, but spoilers ahead. The early parts of the 2014 book Naked in the Woods follow Margaret Grunstein's years as a student at Yale and her entree into the world of activism and the hippie movement. It briefly covers her experience in the late 1960s, a time when students organized and protested, demanding an end to the Vietnam War and racism, and argued for the liberation of women and environmental stewardship. It also covers a really bad acid trip and her messed up relationship with a creepy, controlling, selfish, cheating, cocaine, and heroin-addicted asshole, soon to be her husband. Because, of course, when you're a young, idealistic, intelligent woman on the cusp of graduating with a master's degree in city planning from Yale University, you go and marry a guy like that, just in case the future was looking too good or something. Margaret and her live-in boyfriend, Hakeem, were involved in protests and community action. But as those heady days of the 1960s gave way to Altamont, Kent State, the Manson family, and President Nixon, and they watched armored tanks roll through New Haven on May Day 1970, the couple felt things closing in. As the author writes, how did the whimsy, optimism, and naivete under which we functioned lead us here? They decided to head west with a few friends and start over. Rather than try to remake the world around them, they would remake themselves. Instead of trying to change the old world, they would create a new one, a utopia. Just after May Day and the Kent State Massacre, Margaret graduated from Yale, and the couple quickly married in a small ceremony. It was a modest event, and they provided wine, cheese, and bread as refreshment, with the author saying, For a touch of elegance, I added melon balls. She used the plastic lid of their hi-fi set for a serving bowl. Very resourceful. A week after the wedding, they packed all their worldly belongings into a van and headed for Eugene, Oregon. They were now setting their plans to head west into motion, in what they thought of as a search for a simpler life. After a stay in Eugene in an apartment, in which the author's nightmare husband becomes an even less sympathetic character, 
The couple and several of their friends landed at a farm about an hour outside of Eugene in Greenleaf, Oregon. Through all this, the author never really explains how they're getting by financially. She claims they had no money when they left New Haven, but somehow they could afford to rent a farm that was being vacated by the actual farmer and his family because he couldn't make enough money farming to live there. And how they managed to rent an apartment in Eugene for several months is also unexplained. She herself worked in a bakery two days a week, while her no-good husband and his loser friend, who lived with them in the apartment, didn't work at all. I get that it's harder to make a living now than it was in 1970, but I'm pretty sure you couldn't have afforded a place to live and food for three people working two days a week making pastries, even then. What I haven't mentioned up to now is that the husband, Hakim, also happened to be a prince from Jakarta, Indonesia. The author never says so explicitly, but I have to assume they must have been surviving on his family's money, which he always had plenty of back when they were living in New Haven as students. However, that money must have dried up eventually because a short time later in the story, the couple are living off of unemployment checks and food stamps. That's one of the unfortunate hiccups in the hippie ethos of living free and eschewing evil capitalism and the man. They tended to run out of money. Anyway, back in the story, things really start cooking when Margaret, Hakeem, and their buddies decide to forgo rooms inside the ranch house on their rented farm and start residing in tree houses in the woods and not wearing clothes. Yes, we've finally reached the literal naked-in-the-woods portion of the story. In the summer of 1971, hippie communes were a big thing, with the likes of The Farm, Morning Star, New Buffalo, and now Greenleaf. Visitors would come and go, seekers, traveling west and getting stone in their VW buses. The general idea of these communes seemed to be a fantasy of getting back to the land. In the case of Greenleaf, their philosophy was comprised of an ironic blend of Native American hunter-gatherer vibe crossed with pioneer homesteaders. However, the rental house had hot and cold running water, electricity, and even a dishwasher, which they refused to use on principle. While they'd left the city for the country, they were far from self-sufficient, but that was the dream. This utopian getting back to the land thing is a hang-up for me when people present it as the simple life, which is how Margaret Grunstein refers to it multiple times throughout the book. While I can't argue against the fact that getting in touch with nature is good for the soul and grounds us in reality, I've never been able to get behind the misguided idea that life used to be simpler and more enjoyable, free from the frantic hustle and bustle of modern life. For most of human history, life was about eking out an existence, hunting and gathering, or later farming, working yourself to the bone, and trying not to die of rampant disease or famine. And couples had as many children as they could, in the hopes that some of them would survive. No electricity, no clean running water, no antibiotics. Does that sound simpler to you? <laughs> Me neither. Subsistence farming and homesteading aren't charming, simple lifestyles. For most of humanity, past and present, 
They represent a brutal, hard scrabble existence and usually an early death. To some of you, this next point may sound unrelated, but to me, this draws a pretty straight line to certain political persuasions of today, namely a particular contingent that identifies with the phrase, make America great again. It's all in that last word, again. When was this mythical time when things were great and then they stopped being great? Who was everything great for? Surely not poor people, women, black people, brown people, gay people, sick people, disabled people, illiterate people, or kids. So how many people truly, honestly want humanity to move backward? And why? Isn't it human nature to desire to participate in humanity's inexorable march forward? Progress only moves in one direction. Sure, maybe it's two steps forward and one step back, but ultimately, human civilization has never gone in a backward direction. Why would anyone think it could start now or that we would even want it to? We've literally fought wars to make sure that it doesn't. See World War II and the American Civil War, among others. I learned a new word this year, meliorism. It means the belief that, in general, the world keeps getting better. By objective measures, this is an observable fact. Every day, 200,000 people around the world rise above the $2 a day poverty line, and 300,000 people get access to electricity and clean water for the first time. Life expectancies continue to rise, and childhood mortality keeps falling. More of the world's people than ever before are living in democracies. I think about this quite a bit, because here in the year 2020, things seem pretty bad, and most people believe that everything is really bad right now. In some cases, the worst they've ever been. The coronavirus pandemic is a true horror, with almost 1.7 million global deaths and counting. So yeah, it's bad, and the world has some other big-ass problems. But even so, by most measures, things are very far from the worst they've ever been. I think part of the reason things feel so bad is, one, the tendency to romanticize the past, making it look much better than it really was, and two, while human progress has always been made in fits and starts, now we have the technology and ability to annihilate ourselves with our stupidity if we backslide off this precipice, thanks to the doomsday clock running out on nuclear weapons proliferation ecological devastation and climate change, so the stakes seem that much higher. There's also the 24-hour news cycle of doom and gloom. But perception aside, and acknowledging that we still have much further to go, most of humanity is living far, far better today than at any other time in history, including just a couple of decades ago. Is it because people are getting back to the land? Well, no. Actually, it's the opposite. The reality is that quality of life is going up around the world because of economic development and expanding access to modern technology like clean water, electricity, more food, including protein sources like meat, vaccines, and more medical care. But that development also comes at a cost in the form of more carbon emissions and consumption. 
Would it surprise you to know that expanding access to life-saving surgery is a considerable contributor to rising greenhouse gas emissions and waste output? To use the infamous phrase, it's an inconvenient truth. My point? Trying to live in harmony with nature in the modern world is a good thing, even an imperative given the time bomb of climate change and ecological collapse we're currently sitting on, but looking backward with rose-colored glasses is a dead end, and opting out of modern society is very unlikely to change it. But that's all with the benefit of hindsight. So meanwhile, back at Greenleaf in 1971, the group forged on with what they considered their revolutionary act of leaving materialism and capitalist greed behind to play around in the woods naked. A few of the group's members tried to practice a version of the hippie free love concept, but ended up with mostly hurt feelings, broken hearts, awkwardness, and a whole lot of drama. They also started growing weed, dropped a lot of acid, and somehow managed to start a functioning vegetable garden after having a neighbor lady come and plow up the soil and getting a book on organic gardening from a local secondhand shop. They kept chickens and goats, bought seafood for cheap straight off the docks, got bear and venison from their friends at neighboring communes, and supplemented their diet with government cheese through the USDA's food surplus program soon to be known as food stamps. The group lived more or less as one big happy family for a while, gardening, taking steam baths in their homemade sauna hut, and getting high as often as possible. After several months, one of the group gave birth to a baby girl named Shine. The mother had no prenatal or postnatal care and almost died after giving birth, which goes back to my point about the so-called simple life. Other adventures during the group's first year included a foiled kidnapping, one of the commune residents building a Polynesian-style catamaran to sail himself back to Indonesia because he thought that would be easier than earning the money for a plane ticket, and lots and lots and lots of tripping on the part of everyone except the author. Remember that bad acid trip I mentioned at the beginning of the episode? Well, between that and a subsequent flashback of terror, she never quite got over that and pretty much avoided drugs assiduously after that. Hippies figured that expanding their minds with copious amounts of drugs, especially but not limited to marijuana and LSD, would set them free. This seemed to work out okay for lots of people, but as the author acknowledges, by the time the events in this book were taking place, there was already a noticeable backdrop of suicides, overdoses, and minds gone berserk that were never the same again. The 1970s brought the end of the Vietnam War and the beginning of the war on drugs, which almost 50 years on has given us hundreds of billions of dollars spent, millions of arrests made, half a million Americans incarcerated on drug charges, and no reduction in drug use. Psychedelics specifically probably warrant their very own failed utopia episode, especially with the resurgence of modern research into how they affect the brain and whether they can be harnessed as treatments for various mental health conditions. And the war on drugs is a definite future episode, but 
For the sake of this story, let's at least throw the hippie concept of the benefits of drugs on the scrap heap of failures and move on. As the commune's year-long lease on the farm was coming to an end, the group decided it was time to look for a more permanent home. One of the group's members found and purchased a 160-acre plot of land a couple of hours south of Greenleaf in a remote, mountainous area of Oregon State. This time, they were really going for it. The large plot of land featured no running water or electricity and just a rustic abandoned one-room cabin. They called the property Flores Creek, after the stream that ran through the bottom of the property. The group, of course, couldn't afford to buy property since supposedly they didn't have two nickels to rub together, but one of the group's members' parents put up the money for the land and the group moved in. Grunstein describes their move-in day, leaving the farm in Greenleaf as follows. Our final exodus south was a cross between the Dust Bowl diaspora of the Depression and peasants on the move. We draped our flatbed truck, which had jerry-rigged plywood sides with a tarp. I rode in the back, along with Rocky and Janet, as well as our dining table, three benches, loose tools, jumbled household items, trash bags full of clothes, a few crates with chickens, and two tethered goats. We humans dangled our legs over the back end and watched the scenery recede, trying not to breathe the exhaust that wafted up from the tailpipe. Nestled with friends and livestock, inhaling noxious gases, I was ready for the next phase of our utopian experiment. While Margaret Grunstein was a true believer and relished the move to Flores Creek, the far more rustic living conditions did meet with some casualties. The first to go was the woman with the newborn baby, who for some reason wasn't down to chop wood and start a fire to boil water every time she needed to wash a dirty cloth diaper. She moved to Eugene with another of the women from the commune. One of the couples left for something called Paramahansa Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship. If you've ever read the book Autobiography of a Yogi, that's the guy. Oh, and the commune member who'd been building that boat I mentioned earlier got himself a stolen plane ticket back to Indonesia. Apparently back in those ancient times, you could actually steal blank plane tickets from a travel agency and then fill them out by hand with your flight information. Maybe they really were simpler times. Another couple left over a dispute about whether they could build a concrete geodesic dome inspired by Buckminster Fuller. Now that the group lived on land which was actually owned by a single member of their group, there could be disputes over such things. But those who left were soon replaced by newcomers. Some came, some went, and some stayed for days or weeks or years. Then one day, the author's deadbeat husband blindsided her by sleeping with another woman who was visiting from another hippie commune. He left with the other woman and took up residence at her commune called Footbridge. They'd been neighbors to the Footbridge commune during the year they spent at the farm in Greenleaf. I think I've made it clear enough earlier in the episode that this husband of hers was an ass clown, and I for one was more than happy to put him in the rear view by this point in the book. But he was her husband after all, so she was pretty upset. And something else that I may not have made clear up until now is that 
Hakim was also the de facto leader of the group. He was sort of the glue that held it all together. Depending on your perspective, Hakim was either inspirational or weaselly. He could get people to do things, not least of all the author herself, but other people too. His leadership style was less of an iron fist and more of an underhanded one. Oh, you don't like my suggestion? Well, aren't you true to our cause? Aren't you a revolutionary? You're either with us or you're with them, the fascists. Anyway, for better or worse, he takes off, leaving Margaret in the dust, literally. The best part of this chapter of the book is Margaret's reaction and then what her best friend Carol says to her after. I really loved that you tried to beat him up, Carol said, getting excited. I thought it was just great. Somebody fucks you over, beat the shit out of them. I admire you for it, Margaret. (laughs) That's sisterhood. She spends the next year healing, gaining some self-assurance, carving out her place as a newly single woman living a rugged homesteading life in the commune and learning the skills to build her own shack to live in. As the group's last remaining tax refunds and unemployment checks gradually petered out and disappeared, they found themselves having to get ever more resourceful. They took trips to dumpster dive behind grocery stores, foraged for edible plants in the woods, and started a garden, which sadly didn't thrive. They did manage to grow plenty of dope, though, thank God. When they stopped being able to afford feed for their chickens, they turned them out to forage in the wild for themselves, and in turn, they foraged for the eggs. They survived, but they were hungry. In other words, things were getting more primitive. Oh, speaking of primitive, Hakim came back. Yes, his new woman got tired of his bullshit and kicked him out, keeping their young child. Lucky us. The commune continued on in this manner, scraping by for a couple more years, but then it came to an end. How? In a word, poverty. Even when it's self-induced, poverty has its limits, and you can't live on nothing forever. After five years of communal life naked in the woods, Margaret had to face a return to the real world. The rest of the commune members also dispersed, some of their tales ending in success and others in tragedy. But what can we say about the ideas they fought for? How about that world peace? The hippies wanted the human race to make love, not war. While conflict around the world has generally declined, I can also say that the U.S. has been at war every single day of my adult life. There are Americans currently in college who haven't lived a single day of their lives without their country being at war. In fact, there are only 21 calendar years in the entire history of the United States since 1776, in which the country was not at war. I can't bring myself to call that a fun fact, but it's a fact. So, while protests may have helped bring about the end of the Vietnam War, it seems they did little to turn the nation's hawks into doves. Another central hippie cause? Environmentalism. Important environmental protections have been passed from time to time over the years, cleaning up the nation's air and water. On the other hand, thanks to ever-increasing carbon emissions, Climate scientists warn us that should we do nothing and allow climate change to run its course, 
We're looking at a future of deadly droughts, superstorms, submerged coasts, mass human migration, also termed climate refugees, which we're already seeing, and food scarcity. Now that would be going backward, and I don't think anyone wants to see that future come to pass. If we are to move forward and create a future where human civilization grows and thrives while preserving our planet's ability to support us as a life form, it's going to have to be through innovation and technological progress, not by moving backward in time. That ship has sailed. Likewise, if we want to see a future where our ideals of equality, freedom, and human potential are to be realized, the way can only be forward. So, if the boomers who espoused these hippie philosophies back in the 60s have been running the show for the last several decades, how did we get here? Well, it's simple. While we like to look back and pretend that hippies were the defining force of the 1960s, they weren't. In 1968, right smack between the summer of love and Woodstock, less than 0.2% of the population identified as hippies. The vast majority of Americans were never down with peace, love, psychedelics, and sticking it to the man. In fact, much of society was somewhere on the spectrum between derisive and hostile toward hippies. The small counterculture might have burned brightly, and left its indelible Paisley image on the national imagination. But hippies had all but disappeared by the mid-1970s. Some moved on to the spiritual, New Age subculture of the 70s, but most simply assimilated into the much more conventional and conservative mainstream American culture. However, ultimately, American culture has become much less restrictive over the past 50 years, thanks to the substantial gains made by the large civil rights, gay rights, and women's movements of the past several decades. In conclusion, running naked through the woods like some kind of magical forest nymph appeals to me a lot, believe me, but here in the real world, there are some practical considerations. For now, I think I'll stick to my day job, fully stocked grocery store shelves, and my Wi-Fi. As I wrap this up, Here's a parting thought. What if, instead of a flash in the pan, the philosophies of the hippie movement had worked their way through society, their communal ideals and back-to-the-earth fantasies, live and let live, the mantra of make love, not war, spreading far and wide? What would our society look like today? If you found this episode interesting, I recommend picking up the book, Naked in the Woods. There's a whole lot more in there than what I covered, and the book is actually very well written. Margaret Grunstein's writing is intelligent, witty, and reflective. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it, and if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link in the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com, or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. 
The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.